0: The first time I gave any serious thought to the book Song of Songs was when I was in college and serving as a counselor at a Lutheran summer camp. I was in a room full of high school boys uh, serving as their counselor, and of course one of the high school boys found Song of Songs of all books. And of course they found this chapter with Solomon describing the Shulamite, who is now his wife, in intimate detail, even saying, your breasts are like two fawns, twins of gazelle. Of course, you can imagine how this went over in a room full of high school boys. And suddenly, I think these boys read more scripture in 10 minutes than they had read all year. So what in the world is this doing in the Bible? This seems to be the sort of the thing that, that would be kept private between a husband and wife. But that's actually exactly what it is. Again, the fullness and complete reality of Song of Songs, which is a love song between King Solomon and his bride, the Shulamite, uh, the the complete reality and fullness of that is a song between Christ and his bride, the church. And, And so this particular section, in reality, is Christ's private song to you to you who are the bride of Christ, to whom he is joined forever. And Christ says to you, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. God has designed marriages to follow specific patterns. The time of betrothal, where uh, a man and a woman are engaged to each other, or dedicated to be married to each other. Uh, We call that an engagement, but uh, a betrothal is something uh, deeper uh, and has legal backing behind it. And then comes the wedding ceremony, uh, where their union is actually declared. And finally, their marriage, when their union is actually accomplished. Uh, It's consummated. And this union, this sexual union, is one which, according to God's design, must not take place until the marriage is declared. I think of the order of things in, in God's word. First the declaration, then the accomplishment. God spoke, and it was. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God declared that Adam, uh, by himself, alone, Uh, was not good, and so he declared that Adam should have a wife. And he had Eve be created and and joined her to Adam to be his wife. God declared that a Savior would be born to save Adam and Eve and, and all of Adam's descendants from their sin. And God did it. He accomplished it when he sent Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. And God declared that in the waters of baptism, washed in those waters by the word, that you are pure and holy and righteous. And guess what? You are pure and holy and righteous. God has given you his name holy name, the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, just in the same way that a groom gives his bride his name in marriage. And one day, at least for us on this side of heaven, uh, there will be accomplishment of that declaration by God. You might be familiar with St. Lucia, and if you're not, she is a wonderful and important figure to know in the history of the Christian church. St. Lucia was a real person. She lived uh, less than 300 years after the time of Jesus and the apostles. And she was martyred when she was only 21, but probably not for the reason you would expect. In those days, women were worth a lot of money. And I'm not saying that they aren't today, but uh, women were worth a lot of money because um, the families would have to give a dowry uh, to the family of the groom when their daughter would go off to be married. And especially from wealthy families like uh, Lucia was from. And so, uh, by the way, uh, St. Nicholas, uh, whom you're familiar with as Santa Claus, Uh, The the legend surrounding him and the reason we get presents with Saint Nicholas, uh, Santa Claus, is that he gave um, a a large sum of money to three young girls uh, who were too poor to afford a dowry and couldn't get married. So he gave a a large portion of money as a gift to them uh, and uh, legend has it, it landed in their stocking. Uh, So that's where we get Santa Claus. Uh, But Saint Lucia, her mom, her mother had wished that she would marry a Roman pagan. Uh, so someone that not only is not a Christian, but is obstinate towards Christianity. And so St. Louis Lucia, against her mother's wishes, had vowed to always remain single, to be unmarried, to be a virgin. And her reason was twofold. First, the money for her dowry could be used instead to feed the poor to help the poor. And secondly, she understood who Christ was, that if Christ is called the bridegroom in scripture, and if he's the bridegroom to the whole church, then that also means that he's the bridegroom to her. And so to take another uh, husband, to take a husband to be her uh, husband on earth would be to take her devotion, some of her devotion away from Christ. Uh, And so she vowed to always remain single and uh, chaste. And her devotion to Christ ultimately got her martyred, got her killed by the man who handed her over to, be, to the authorities, by the man who, would, uh, who was supposed to be her husband. And St. Lucia's chastity and her reason for not getting married, that seems very strange to us, but it really was not all that uncommon. Now, most of the time, our issue today Is that we think that we're so good, so virtuous, at least better than other people, and so therefore, God, God, of course, God should love us and would love us like like a a groom loves his bride, and that's a dangerous attitude to have. But then we look at somebody like Saint Lucia and we think, I could never devote myself to Christ like that. I can never be like that, and it humbles us, and it should. But we should also be careful about comparing ourselves to to others all the time, really, because it's also possible to fall into the opposite extreme, into despair, and to wonder how in the world could Christ possibly love me, a wretched sinner? And to not believe it, to not believe that he does, uh, to doubt his love. And it's for this reason that Solomon writes these beautiful descriptions of his bride. And I'm gonna go through these line by line, and it might help uh, if you had your text uh, with you as I read through these. Uh, First thing are the eyes. And the eyes are are so stunning that they are visible behind her veil. And they're described as doves. Now Now the dove is a symbol of peace with God and a symbol of the resurrection. And they're always used in connection with water. So think of the dove that was sent out uh, when Noah and his family uh, had been saved from uh, everything below them and saved by water. Or we think of the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and landing on Jesus at his baptism as the Father declared of him, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Or even we think of Jonah, Jonah's name means dove. And he was swallowed by the great fish, but then three days later he had his own resurrection and then was sent by God to declare God's peace to the people of Nineveh. The dove is a symbol of baptismal peace, of righteousness and of life. And our eyes in God's sight are vibrantly, righteously alive through nothing that we have done. Next is her hair. And it's described as a flock of goats, and her teeth are a flock of shorn ewes. And we think of Jesus' parable about his second advent when he will come again to judge the living and the dead uh, and will separate uh, the righteous from the unrighteous as a shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. And the sheep will be on the right hand. The righteous will be on the right hand. But the interesting thing about that is that the sheep, the righteous, they didn't know that they were righteous. They didn't know that they were beautiful. They didn't see their beauty or their goodness. But Jesus does. These sheep in Song of Songs are described as especially white, having just come up from the washing. They've been made clean, made white, And how have they been made white? The next thing that's described are her lips. And these are described in stark contrast to the white teeth. They're like a scarlet thread. There quite literally is a scarlet thread running throughout scripture. And it always points to Jesus' redemption of the saints. And it's this stark contrast of Jesus' blood his scarlet blood making us clean, washing us clean. Revelation seven fourteen says, They have washed their robes and made them white in the red blood of the Lamb. The Shulamite's cheeks are described next, being like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Pomegranates in Scripture are always representative of, 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 of plenty and prosperity and blessing. And they were embroidered on the robes of priests in the Old Testament. That's actually what I have on my stole, too. And again, this is all visible behind her veil. And those who are familiar with Scriptures might think of Moses. After he came down from Mount Sinai, after talking with God and receiving the Ten Commandments, he came down the mountain and he got down to the Israelites and the Israelites were afraid of him. They wouldn't come near him. Moses wasn't sure why this was and so suddenly finally told him that your face is glowing. Moses' face was glowing simply by being in the presence of God. God. And so Moses had to put a veil over his face, but even behind the veil, his face still shone through. And it's this picture that's the bride. Her glory, our glory, is not our own. It's a reflection of the beauty of our bridegroom of Christ. Like how the moon reflects the light of the sun, but doesn't have uh, or create its own light, but merely reflects it. That's our light and our glory. It's simply a reflection of of Christ. Next to last, the Shulamite's neck is poetically described. Like the Tower of David, which is guarded by a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors, her bridegroom protects her with his own forces. In the same way that the Church of Christ, which is the church militant on earth, is protected by our bridegroom and his forces. The angels and archangels which protect us against the demons and they fight with with God's word. And the saints, uh, using the weapons of God's word and sacraments for our benefit, they fight with their witness. And all of these are what the writer to the Hebrews calls so great a cloud of witnesses. Indeed, a thousand shields. And finally, we come to the most intimate feature. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Think of how a mother nourishes and feeds her baby. The church in scripture is called called our mother. Our mother who nourishes us and feeds us with God's word and sacraments. So the bridegroom then goes away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. And we think of the gifts that the wise men brought, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But myrrh and frankincense are spices that were used for burial. The bridegroom ascends a mountain to die, to die for his bride. A spouse who doubts their worthiness and ability to be loved Especially when they compare themselves to others who, who may be stronger or younger or more beautiful or more patient or whatever the virtue might be, only has to listen to their spouse say, I love you in spite of all your flaws, and then witness them as they show that love by their actions. Christ shows his love to us, his bride, by giving himself for us, on the mountain of myrrh and frankincense, the the hill of Calvary on the cross. This is how we know that we are loved by God. No matter what our status, if we're single, married, or previously married, no matter what our spiritual state is, Christ is our true bridegroom, And he comes, he advents to us continually, and he calls to us. And through baptism, he calls us holy and righteous and beautiful. Through the Lord's Supper, he calls us strong and worthy. And through his word, he calls us glorious and without any spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. Christ says, you are altogether beautiful, my love, There is no flaw in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be forevermore. Amen.